This is the Callie Crossley Show, and I'm Callie Crossley. It sits on top of old railroad railroad yards. It's 900 feet of concrete, glass, and steel. 18 elevators zip up and down this structure day and night, and its rooftop gives folks the best view of the city. We're talking about the Prudential Tower, the building that changed Boston forever. Elihu Rubin, you've literally written the book on the Prudential. (laughs) Um, Why do you say this building turned Boston into a modern city? Well, Callie, thank you. It's a real pleasure to join you and talk about the Prue, the tower, and the complex, the whole set of buildings of which the Prue, of course, is the signature central tower. The Prudential building and the ensemble of buildings around it really did change Boston in the 50s and 60s and helped set the stage for a remaking of the city as really the important regional and national financial center that it is today. It's important to remember that Boston in the 50s was was really concerned about its future. It was concerned that the city was going to become you know, the donut hole in the center of the new suburban metropolis. And they were concerned about making sure that people would come to the city to invest in the city and to build up the city. There hadn't really been uh, too much important real estate development, with a few exceptions, really since the 1920s. Uh, We can talk about some of those exceptions too. But Prudential, this national corporation based in Newark, um, showed confidence in Boston to say that we're going to come here, build our northeastern home office, and set the stage for a new vision of this city as a modern office center. After the Prudential was built, it was opened in 65, and more buildings were built all the way through the early 1970s. And then, of course, it's been totally renovated since the 80s and 90s. We can we can talk about that too. Um, but after that, there were major new investments in new new office buildings in downtown Boston. By the end of the 60s, Boston was in the middle of a of a building boom uh, downtown. Uh, the Prudential, of course, was built in Midtown, and then its own neighbors would join would follow suit. The Hancock would go ahead and announce news for their own new building in 1968. That was ready by the mid-1970s. The Christian Science Center went ahead and, and with a major new uh, redevelopment program once the Prue was in place as well. The Prue's sign of confidence, the Prudential Insurance Company's sign of confidence in the 50s was a major turning point uh, for the future of Boston. So it's fair to say that uh, with the building of the Prue that there was Boston before the Prue and Boston after the Prue. And I want to pick up on one point that you made about industrial setting for Boston at the time mm-hmm. that the Prue was being built. Uh, you say in your book that because when the Prue when the Prue was built, Boston was moving from being an industrial center to really an office thinking of itself as an office center, which is, a, you know, as we think about that, that's a little bit more upscale, that's talking about a different kind of business. Uh, speak about that if you would. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The transition uh, in Boston between an industrial city and a, a post-industrial city or a, or a service center, financial center, where uh, finance, insurance, and real estate, the fire industries, as we call them, would come to, to sort of dominate the economic landscape, is beginning to happen unevenly in cities all over the country. Now, it's important to remember that in the 50s, there is a new industrial landscape going up in the Boston region. It's Route 128. Mm. And that's where the new high-tech industries are being built. Uh, And when Prudential came to Boston, they looked out and they saw the whole region and they saw many different investment opportunities for them in the growing new high-tech industries of, of Route 128. But the center of the city itself, Boston as a city, um, was becoming less industrialized. And the old railroads in particular that were so much a part of the building up of the city in the 19th century and literally the building up of the city because so much of the land of Boston was made by railroads crossing over the marshes and filling in the land. Um, Those railroads were struggling in the 50s and 60s. And they saw their uh, tracks and their yards and their terminals as investment opportunities, as assets that needed to be um, capitalized on, that needed to be monetized. So the Boston and Albany Railroad, then owned by the New York Central, had these huge yards in the back bay and they were looking to sell them. And Prudential came in 
to take the place of the railroad. One of the points I like to make in this book is really a transition between railroad companies being some of the most important companies in city building to insurance companies stepping in to play that role in the in the 20th century. And it was part of the whole moving toward the office culture, as we've said. I want to talk about both what was happening physically, the physical location where the Pru decided to build its building. Mm -hmm. And then what was happening from a social cultural uh, perspective that also influenced um, the decision as well. So first, the physical location. What You you talked about the railroad tracks, but on this piece of land that the Peru folks, uh, the landscape uh, architect and the the Peru officials decided to build on, what was there? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What was there was a fanning set of rail yards where cars would be stored and manipulated in one form or another. Now, you got to remember, when this land was originally built and filled in, there was nothing there. It was the fringe of the city. Over the course of the first half of the 20th century and the the last quarter of the 19th century, the city of Boston gets filled in all around it. Now we have this rail yard, this kind of piece of industrial infrastructure in the middle of a growing city. You got the back bay on the north side. You've got the south end on the south side. You have the Fenway and some of the cultural institutions to the west, and you have this rail yard sitting in the middle of it. Um, This was the land that Prudential saw huge opportunities for. Now, it's important to remember that Prudential was looking for big sites. They didn't want to build an ordinary office tower. They wanted to build – they wanted to stretch out. They wanted to stretch out and build a place that would have plenty of parking, that would have employee amenities. And in the case of the of the Prudential Center in Boston, where they could also put together a much bigger program, there would be apartments, there would be department stores. It was going to be connected with the municipal auditorium, which Prudential happened to throw in maybe a quarter million dollars to help build at that time too. And a whole and retail amenities too, which as we know never worked as designed. So they they uh, so they remade the whole thing. But this was part of Prudential's national policy. They built these regional home offices in cities across the country, Los Angeles, Houston, Chicago, Jacksonville, Minneapolis, um, and finally, Boston with the Northeastern Home Office. One other important thing to say about this, Callie, which I think is really interesting, they wanted a midtown site. They wanted a big site, which would be accessible by cars. But they wanted an urban site. Mm. They wanted to build an urban icon and they wanted to build a tower with their name emblazoned across the top. So it would really be an advertisement for Prue. So the Prue is hedging. They want a midtown site, which is what insurance companies always do. They are managing their risk. They want a midtown site that's going to be big and accessible by car, but they want an urban building that will be an icon and an advertisement for their company. So at the same time that they're looking for all of that, mm-hmm. uh, it's important to note what was happening in the same general physical area. Uh, lots of the wealthy folk were moving to the suburbs. Uh, so there was a little enclave of Brahmins still down in the Beacon Hill area, but pretty much poor people were living downtown. So when you think about hedging risks, as you've said, that's kind of amazing that they wanted an urban setting because they, of course, knew that the people downtown at that point were mostly poor and immigrants, we should say. Yeah, Callie, that's a really important point. And that's one of the major subtexts of urban renewal more broadly going on. The city is concerned, city leaders are concerned that their middle class taxpayers and largely their white middle class taxpayers are leaving for the suburbs. We now sort of simplify that process as white flight, leaving uh, – lower income people, racial and ethnic minorities downtown in the city in these different enclaves. Um, uh, And one of the main goals of renewal is to help rebuild the central city with environments and landscapes that will attract the white middle classes back to the city. It's one reason why apartment towers were such a key piece of the Prudential program. And the other key example of this, of course, is in the West End, where an Italian-American enclave was demolished and displaced. You know, we, we would come to rue this almost as soon as it had happened. And what we built in that place, what developers built in, in, their, in its place were these kind of bland, austere office towers, the Charles Gate uh, apartments there. You know, the ones where going yes. on Star Road Drive, if yeah. you lived here, you'd, you'd be, be home, home by now. now. Yeah. <laughs> And they had a lot of trouble renting them. You know why? Because a lot of those white middle classes didn't want to move to those apartment towers. 
Although I should hedge on that statement too to say the Prudential apartments were always successful and desirable places to live. But the white middle classes really started coming back downtown with the whole process of gentrifying neighborhoods. And after the Prue was in place in the, in the 60s, the South End begins to change. It begins to change a lot. It becomes one of those kind of urban pioneering places to become what it is today, one of the most desirable, sought-after, expensive parts of the city to live. I think it's fair to say that Prudential's presence played some role in that. I would think a lot of role. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Looking at your book and what what was happening, I didn't realize the demogra- demographics of the time. That that's yeah. that's doing a lot at the time. It is doing a lot at that time, and of course, let's let's remember too. The Prue is really designed with the Pike. It's important to remember the right. Pike and the Prue is is a megastructure. Really, you can really see it when you look from the sky. But physically, engineering-wise, built by the same contractor, planned together, politically joined, and ultimately, Prudential bought more than a quarter of the bonds that were necessary to build the pike. The Prudential essentially financed its own uh, driveway from the suburbs. And it is part of that regional metropolitan landscape. This needs to be an easy place for suburban commuters to get in on the pike, come around that ramp park in the Prue and take the elevator up to the top. So the criticism of the Prue as an enclave is a fair one. Mm. It's a very, very fair one because it is really built in this kind of isolated way. I call the chapter about the pike a closed loop. Yes. Because in many ways, the Prue is really not connected to the neighborhoods, or at least as it was originally designed, not connected to its nearby neighborhoods, more connected to the western suburbs in some sense via the Mass Pike. Much more to talk about the proof from the guy who wrote the book on it, literally. We're talking about the Prudential, love it or hate it. There's no denying that it changed Boston's form and function forever. And that's what my guest, Elihu Rubin, had writes about in his new book. It's called Ensuring the City, the Prudential Center, and the Postwar Urban Landscape. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. This program is on WGBH thanks to you and Miller Systems, designing and delivering websites, intranets, and portals on Microsoft SharePoint. Miller Systems, since 1995. Quality user experiences, technology that's right for the job. MillerSystems.com slash SharePoint. And Old Sturbridge Village celebrating Independence Day, a chance to celebrate America's birthday with music, magic, and a fireworks display at dusk on July 3rd, and a full day of family fun on the 4th. Details and tickets at osv.org. And members of the Great Blue Hill Society, whose estate and planned giving arrangements to WGBH create a lasting legacy and ensure public media for generations to come. What will your legacy be? I'm Marco Werman. Voters in Chile were passive after decades of dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet. But then last year, thousands of Chilean students took to the streets to demand change. Now it's legitimate to say this is wrong. I don't want to smell this anymore. I'm not tolerating this anymore. And it was a student movement that opened this door. A reform movement awakens in Chile next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. It's cool, it's sweet, and it's fun for the whole family. Support WGBH with a gift of just $30, and we'll say thanks with not one, not two, but four tickets to the WGBH Fun Fest, coming to WGBH's Brighton Studios on Saturday, July 14th. There's ice cream from your favorite local vendors, awesome kids' music, there's even a bouncy house. Secure your tickets online at wgbh.org funfest. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. This is the Callie Crossley Show. I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking about the Prudential Tower. My guest, Elihu Rubin's new book, looks at how the Prue came to be and how it changed Boston. We've gotten a few tweets in, and I want to just read a couple of them uh, as we continue our conversation. Christian says, without the Prue, Boston would look like Springfield or worse, Richmond, Virginia. 
Uh, that's from Christian, not from me. <laughs> Jay Madden Mass says, architect friend says the Prue looks like grates on a closed storefront. I said gritty ugly is why I loved it. It fit the old Boston. And Sarah Adler from San Francisco says the Prue was the landmark of my South in childhood. So no question, Elihu Rubin, that the Prue made its mark in ways that I'm sure at the time the architects and designers had no idea. Oh, yeah. And as <laughs> to that metal grate comment, I think that's so... Uh... Interesting. Robert Campbell of The Globe made that statement at one time where he said, you know, it looked like the box that the Hancock Tower uh, came in. And, you know, in the 1980s, Prudential did consider reskinning that facade. But I'm glad they didn't because I think just like that that comment um, alludes to, we sort of appreciate now that kind of ticky-tacky aluminum metal grade. It is part of what makes it distinctive. I'm not sure that we would we would choose to uh, to get rid of it now, even if even if we could. Um, two things. People can continue to tweet us at Callie Crossley if they have comments about the Prudential Center as I continue the conversation with Elihu Rubin. Uh, and I want to talk to you about actual the actual building of of the structure. Uh, much has been made of its design. I don't let's let's put that aside from mm-hmm. the moment. But just building it, it turns out was really difficult. I didn't realize how far they had to go down. Talk about that if you would. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's it goes back to the legacy of that site as literally the back bay. I mean, I don't think uh, that we need to remind Bostonians that, that that area really was a kind of swamp. Um, and the process of rebuilding it is, uh, is um, very much due to the railroads crossing it on these viaducts. So the point is that the, the rail yards themselves were built with a very shallow water uh, table. And in order to support the kind of structures that were intended for the Prudential Center. They needed to sink those foundations, the caissons, very, very deep uh, in and through the muck to finally uh, hit bedrock down there. Um, And once they did that, they ended up creating a foundation that has proved extremely resilient. Uh, you know, over the years, uh, we've managed to put a whole lot of buildings on that foundation. Now, I, planners are very careful about where exactly they go, um, especially because, as you know, the Mass Pike, the extension of the Mass Pike goes literally right underneath the Prue as well. The garages of the Prue form a kind of cage around the Mass Pike, and then there are looping highway ramps to the east of the site. Copley Place that was built in the 80s is built right on top of those looping ramps. But if you were in Boston in 1980, you could see there was a basically a highway interchange right there in the back bay. Um, but that's right. There were a lot of challenges to building there. And it's one of the reasons, it's one of the uh, ways in which the Prudential was able to establish its public purpose in building the Prue there, saying, hey, if this isn't done right, if this isn't done with a lot of money, if this isn't done with a big comprehensive plan by a big company like us, uh, it's not going to end up working. And part of the uh, you know, part of the subplot here, Callie, which is important, is that Prudential insisted on a tax break in order to build this thing. And that's how they were authorized as an urban redevelopment corporation in order to build it. So essentially, Prudential paid an annual fee uh, every year in lieu of property taxes because Prudential insisted on security in terms of property taxes. Boston was famous for very high tax mm. tax assessments and inconsistent tax assessments. So Prudential so said – say that continues now. It, exactly. And there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of yeah. legacies actually that right. are really with us now. Ab- absolutely, 100 um, percent. But uh, but part of then uh, to warrant being an urban redevelopment authority, uh, the redevelopment authority had to then establish a public purpose. And one of those purposes was being able to develop this very difficult site to develop. And it was a difficult site um, because it was an old rail yard in the back bay. So how is it or how has it? been able to withstand. I mean, we've looked around the country when other kinds of weather things have happened to allegedly really strongly built buildings and they've been affected. The Prue is still standing there, not a problem. Low knees nearly 50 years later. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest problems with the Prue was wind. Those original plazas that were built in front of the front of the Prue were extremely uncomfortable places to be. In fact, uh, in the archives, looking through the um, the archives on this project from the architect Charles Luckman Associates, who was a Los Angeles architect, came to Boston to to build this project with his with his big firm. There were stories about how people couldn't open the doors on the plaza because the wind was whipping so hard. People were uh, falling into the moat because of the wind. You know, there used to be a moat uh, there in front of the retail pavilions. 
they considered fixing that too um, with different wind guards and that kind of thing. But ultimately, the solution was to completely reimagine the mm-hmm. Prudential Center as an interiorized shopping arcade. And that's what happened. Mm. And part of that vision was also to bridge the Prue, to bring it closer to Boylston Street, to bring it closer to Huntington Avenue, and to eat into that ring road. Part of the original design had a ring road that circumnavigated the site to funnel cars in off city streets. Again, framed at that time as a public amenity, as an investment in the city's infrastructure. Ultimately, what we realize is that it would have been better for the city and has been to do uh, to do what it can to reach out to those na- neighborhoods and recreate a new street frontage, a new streetscape. That's exactly what's happened on Boylston Street and Huntington Avenue. It looks completely different today than when it was dedicated and it in remains 1965. Sturdy and well. it remains sturdy. It mm-hmm. remains sturdy. That's right. I mean, we could uh, we could talk to a civil engineer to really get the details as to, you know, are those foundations going to how much longer are they going to last? You know, every building. Um, does become obsolete at a certain point mm. in time. It needs to be reinvested. And I think over the course of all of these redevelopments, the planners and designers have, have made sure that uh, the foundations can withstand these new buildings. All right. So we have to talk about – you mentioned Charles Luckman, the architect, and you're an architect yourself and author of the book about the Peru, about the design yes. and how many people just think it's just – you know. Ugly, 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 ugly. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Kelly? You think it's an ugly building? I just, you know what was interesting about it? I was reading all the the comments about it. it's ugly, it's ugly in your yeah. book, yeah. and I thought I've never thought of it as being ugly. I thought of it as being plain. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that, then that really represents the Boston of that time, yeah. kind of plain Yankee. I didn't think of it as ugly, just kind of plain. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing we have to remember in the 1950s when this place was really designed, in the 60s when it was made, modernist architecture was a new thing. I mean, who knew what was going to be good or bad? Today, we look at Lever House on Park Avenue or the Seagram's building. There's a few modernist buildings that have entered the canon of architectural history as being good architecture. But back then, who knew? You know, the idea was a steel-framed tower with a curtain wall of some kind. And so in this case, they go for what they thought was going to be a more lacy, textured design with this kind of aluminum frame, right? Now, it hasn't necessarily worn well in the eyes of some um, esthetes, let's mm-hmm. say. But, you know, for me, that's neither here, or, here nor there. You, uh, reasonable people can disagree what makes for attractive architecture mm. on the one hand. On the other hand, the Prue was criticized urbanistically. Mm. And I think there's a lot to say about that, too, that the plazas didn't work, that the ring roads really created an enclave. Now, the only thing I say – one of the things I say in response to that is what it replaced was a railroad yard. Let's remember that. So it had nowhere to go but up. It had nowhere to go but <laughs> Literally. up. Literally. Yeah. It had, had to be some kind of yeah. improvement. And, you know, that's another reason why the Prue is spared some of the um, some of the worst criticisms and critiques of urban renewal where real neighborhoods were displaced. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case with the Prue where it was a rail yard. They did take down Mechanics Hall, which was a lovely 1880s era uh, brick building that held Boston's most important convention hall up to that point. Of course, we were going to build a new one as part of the Prue, so we didn't need Mechanics Hall anymore. Um, but, uh, but it was the Pike, actually, that bears more of the brunt for displacement because building the Pike extension did uproot communities along, along that line. And that's an interesting part of the story, too. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking about the Prudential Building and how it changed Boston. I'm joined by Elihu Rubin. His new book is Ensuring the City, the Prudential Center and the Postwar Urban Landscape. Uh, Speaking about the Mass Pike and the building of the Prue and the Mass Pike together, I was taken with uh, one sentence in your book, which I thought encapsulated so much of what happens behind the scene that ends up uh, resulting in, in in our urban landscape. You say the legacy of the Prudential Center includes the interplay of corporate, political, and architecture decisions that permitted it to be built in the first place. So when I thought about that and then realized how integral this whole Mass Pike building was to the actual building of the Peru, all of these pieces, as you said, had to come together. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, the Pike and the Peru started off as rivals for that site. Because William F. Callahan, the chair of the Pike, Boston's great highway builder from that era, he wanted to extend his mass pike, which goes, of course, from the border with New York to Route 128, which he also helped build when he was at the Department of Public Works. He wanted to drive it into the heart of the city. 
because he says if we can't build a highway to Boston, Boston's going to fall off the map. He believed that his highway was absolutely central to securing the future of Boston. Uh, that corridor from Route 128 into the city went right through the rail yard site that Prue was at. So they started off fighting for the same old railroad infrastructure, but ultimately they teamed up and uh, the Prue becomes the linchpin for Callahan's plan because ultimately – now maybe this is getting a little bit too detailed, but ultimately after 1956, uh, Governor John Volpe says – why, why are we building a turnpike when we can build a freeway? Mm. We have all this federal funds for freeways now. And turnpikes really come under fire. They say, why, why are we even uh, thinking about financing highways through uh, toll roads when we can now have freeways? And the reason why in Boston, I argue in this book, we have the pike and not some other plan, which might have included the inner belt or other network of highways, is because ultimately the Prue was a sacred cow in Boston. The politicians, uh, every politician from every stripe, they, they could not do without it. And when they learned that the pike and the Prue had been planned together and they were, in today's parlance, shovel-ready projects in mm. that sense, they said, OK, go ahead and build it. Vol- Volpe says, I'm withdrawing my uh, objections. We can't risk postponing this anymore because the Prue said, you got to figure it out. Are we going to get the highway or not? I mean, our building's already designed for it. So they were linchpins for each other. Uh, and that's what created this kind of overall regional landscape about this, about this whole, around this whole project. So at the time, uh, Boston was considered, and you do a lot of comparing to New York, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting, mm-hmm. about how New York used certain buildings, certain cultural uh, places to propel it forward to be an exciting, vibrant center, a, a really modern city of business and, um, and of, of really actually community as well in the way that they built uh, certain uh, kinds of places, particularly the Rockefeller Center, you point to, mm-hmm. whereas Boston was beginning to get a reputation for being staid, boring. Listen, my colleague just had another conversation with, you know, uh, future Boston Alliance uh, talking about Boston State and boring. So there, it was suffering that ap- that reputation back then. And they were looking for a way with both the Prue and the Mass Pike to sort of jumpstart, catapult, if you will, a whole other reputation. Absolutely. That (laughs) reputation for cultural conservatism has been with Boston for a long time. And one of the major ways it was expressed in Boston and in other cities was a height limit on buildings. Boston never had the the soaring skyscrapers of early New York. Um, You know, this is something actually that we're going to have a chance to talk about tomorrow night uh, at the Boston Society of Architects. I do want to let people know they can come down to the BSA space on Congress Street for a little event called Boston and the Skyscraper. And we're going to be talking about, um, you know, some of the skyscrapers from the 50s, but also talk about skyscrapers today because it's going on today at the Mm -hmm. old Filene's building or on Federal Street talking about new skyscrapers and whether or not Boston will embrace it. Bringing the Prue in uh, in the 50s was a moment where Boston says, we need to begin to change our image. And it was the new Boston. That's what the... uh, Renewal era mayors like Hines and Collins were talking about the new Boston. Let's put away this old, staid reputation and become an exciting place for people to live, for people to do business, for people to shop, and all and all the rest of it. So yeah, that was very. Um, and let's very talk about the aspect. height because at the time that it was built, it was the tallest building, and now you know. And really, shortly thereafter, it wasn't the tallest building anymore. When it was built, it was <laughs> the tallest building in, in the United States outside of New York, which, mm. of course, had uh, had most of the rest of them. And, um, you know, the story of the height was uh, a lot of that is Prudential's calculations. It was going to house its own offices, but it was also going to house speculative office space. They brought in a lot of tenants and they got a lot of very uh, important tenants uh, very early, like Boston Edison um, and uh, and other important players. New England Merchants Bank actually built a branch office down on down on the plaza. So it wasn't built uh, as a tall tower strictly for advertisement or iconographic purposes. It was a sound business decision because Prudential really thought that they could rent out the space. They Mm -hmm. thought that it would ultimately pay. And believe me, every single tall uh, office tower is going through exactly those same calculations. How much of it, how tall does it need to be to be an icon, but how much of that space can we ultimately be sure we we can rent? 
Now, what I find interesting is that shortly thereafter, the John Hancock uh, building uh, came into play, the one that we we know of now. Uh, there had been a John Hancock, and then they rebuilt to just top, to, to be bigger and better than, than the Prudential. But and yet, I mean, that's an icon, too. But the Peru has a different sort of response here in, in Boston and beyond. It is. I, I <laughs> often wonder about that. I mean, partly, you know, the Hancock building is famous or has been for, you know, the initial tendency for its mirrored panels to dislodge and come crashing to the ground. So it was sort of mocked for that for a long time. But, you know, architectural Again, aesthetes, let's say, mm-hmm. or critics might might think of that as the more elegant tower because it's on a more subtle, smaller site in the city. And it's the relationship of swiveling on that site and mirroring uh, Trinity Church there and, and Copley, Copley Square, all, all of the rest of it. Um, it handles that smaller urban site in a kind of elegant way. But the building also disappears. It is a kind of mirage. And because of that, it doesn't have that kind of – sort of dumb, goofy quality of the Prudential, uh, which is partly what makes it so iconic. So even though some critics might think it's more elegant, there's something kind of even maybe more boring about the Hancock in some sense. You know, being good architecture doesn't always make it make it more interesting in that way. And I, I'm glad that the Prue still has that kind of goofy appeal in that sense. Now, that so you say goofy, there. dumb appeal. <laughs> yeah. I would say sort of solid, yeah. poured in a storm. Yeah. You know, as as uh, the tweeter said, you know, it's it's there for me. I recognize that as Boston. It has meaning for me in my life and in, in my experience yes. in Boston. And I have another theory about that, too. <laughs> Part of it is because it is a square plan tower. And being a square plan makes it like a beacon. At the beginning of the book, I call it almost like a medieval campanile. <laughs> Right. Uh, Like a medieval clock tower that was the symbol of those cities. There's something about the square plan because it reaches out and faces each direction evenly and sitting as it does in the middle of that site, I think partly gives it its iconic quality. And, you know, those plazas which turned out to be so unsuccessful as retail areas, were really designed as these ceremonial viewing platforms to see this kind of monument. I think if the tower had been rectangular – wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't yeah, have happened. That's right. Wouldn't have had the same kind of iconic uh, appeal that it has today. So uh, the pro, the the actual the Prudential folks sold the building. They don't own it anymore. Uh, that's right. Uh, though they can continue to maintain the signage, right? So that's why the Pru Tower can mm-hmm. do all those, you know, go socks and everything else mm-hmm. up there. So we've talked about it's becoming the icon, the symbol of a changing Boston. In the next 50 years, because it's almost been 50 years there mm-hmm. in that space, mm-hmm. what do you predict for its iconic status? Can it remain so um, as as we approach the its next half century? That is a really <laughs> great question, uh, and it's, it'll be so interesting to find out. I think that it will, partly because of its midtown location. You know, there are going to be new tall buildings that go up in the financial district, and in a lot of ways – uh, Boston will have maybe even a more impressive downtown financial district skyline. But there will also always be that kind of uh, midtown back bay addendum to the skyline with the Hancock to the Prue and all of the new towers around the Prue. You know, some planners have called that the high spine. It's mm. the spine of the back bay that kind of leads to the financial district towers. Because the Prue is at the western edge of the city, it will always be that first beacon that you see. You know, coming down, let's say, the Pike, uh, just after Route 128, you'll see it there on the horizon. You'll see the Prue, and then you'll see the Hancock, and that will be the first sign. You've arrived. You've hit Boston. This is it. At least from the West. If you're coming from the sea, it'll be something different, won't it? There is no more (laughs) enthusiastic person about the Prue than my guest, Elihu Rubin, who is here to talk about the Prudential Center. Thank you so much. If you you want to hear more from him, he'll be speaking at the Boston School of Architecture tomorrow night at 630 in downtown Boston. Thanks again. Coming up from the heights of skyscrapers, we're going underground. Could the subterranean be the new prime real estate in American cities? We've got that story for you on WGBH Boston Public Radio.
Funding for our programs comes from you and One SIM Card mobile voice, text, and data service for budget conscious international travelers. One SIM Card lets you manage the expense of using your cell phone while traveling in over 200 countries without any commitments. Online at onesimcard.com. And Bank of America. Bank of America and all the predecessor banks that became Bank of America have supported WGBH for literally decades. Bob Gallery, Massachusetts President, Bank of America. Being associated with WGBH just amplifies how important this institution is to the city of Boston. I couldn't imagine Boston without WGBH. To learn more, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. On the next Fresh Air, why flying is no fun anymore and may be getting more dangerous. Aviation writer William McGee says airlines cost-cutting hasn't just added fees and hassles. He says airplane maintenance is being outsourced to foreign companies where some workers can't read manuals for equipment they're working on. His book is Attention All Passengers. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Support WGBH right now, and you'll be entered to win a trip for two to England to visit Highclere Castle, the real castle at the heart of the hit masterpiece drama Downton Abbey. You'll spend four nights at the vineyard at Stockcross, take a private tour of the castle with Lady Fiona Carnarvon, and receive a signed copy of her fascinating book, Lady Almina and the Real Downton Abbey. But don't delay. This contest ends on June 29th. Call 888-897-9424. Listening to the Callie Crossley Show, I'm Callie Crossley. Today, more and more people are moving back into the city, and with the world population only increasing, where are city dwellers going? City dwellers going to live, and how will we be able to conserve space and resources? Turns out, living underground is an idea that's gaining traction among urban planners. Leon Nafa, you've been thinking about this and writing about it. Do you think you'd like living underground? <laughs> no, I don't think I would like living underground. I I I, I think uh, I think most people find the idea of it kind of scary and um, queasy making. I think it, uh, we think of it as kind of a dark place, uh, a damp place, um, and some people even think it's uh, you know are scared to be down there because they are scared of collapse or fire or things like that. Um, you know, when when we talk about new uses of underground space, generally these uh, engineers are talking about putting various kinds of infrastructure down there. Um, uh, rather than having housing there. But, you know, what's interesting is that I, I wasn't aware that there's more and more conversation about uh, putting structures underground and that in some cities it's already happening, uh, primarily to think about where you might want to put people to live, but really for other kinds of functions. Uh, why is all of a sudden there is a new renewed interest? Because there always has been some talk about underground mm-hmm. um uh, well, communities, but why now? Well, I think it's, it's it's it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of the uh, uh, beginning, where uh, you know populations are growing, um, cities are getting bigger and more dense. Um, it, it means that we just need more stuff all the time. We need more roads. We need more housing. We need more you know power. We need more water reservoirs. We need more sewer sewage systems. Um, and and that just means that there's less space um, to put everything. Um, Building underground kind of allows you to free up space on the surface of the earth uh, for things that you want to live around and be near and then put sort of mm, less pleasant things like, let's say, a a water treatment plant or an oil storage facility um, underground where, you know, it's out of sight and out of mind. Uh, that's my guest, Leon Nafa. He's a reporter for the Boston Globe, and he's been writing about uh, going underground, if you will. So for people who don't believe us, <laughs> there's a new visitor center that's connected to the Vietnam Memorial underground. Virginia State Capitol is building an underground extension. The Philly Museum of Art has underground parking facility. That's not quite so unusual. Uh, here in Boston, we've had conversation on the Cali Crossley Show with a couple of architects who are looking at building underground cultural spaces in Boston. But but it's happening also in a big way in Helsinki and places like Singapore. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, so in Helsinki is sort of held up by engineers um, who are interested in excavation and tunneling as like a great example of how we should be thinking about underground space because 
they have actually put forth a uh, a, a master plan for how they're going to uh, use their underground. Because one of the problems is that when we put stuff under there, it often happens sort of on a piecemeal basis. So we'll put something under there, and then like maybe a couple of years later, we'll think of something else to put down there, and things can get in each other's way. Um, in Helsinki, they're actually thinking of it in a very holistic way. Um, so just a couple of examples of what they have down there. Um, uh, the main, actually, the most most interesting one is they have a, da- a data storage center um, underground. Um, one of the advantages of having a data storage center um, underground is that uh, you, it doesn't take much money to cool it, which is a big problem uh, above ground. In fact, the temperature thing is a real boon because it is cooler underground. And so, there's mm-hmm. when you think about it, there's so many things that could benefit by being in a cooler space and not uh, having to take up so much energy to cool it. Right, and like in uh, in Kansas City, uh, in Missouri, there's a huge facility for storage and manufacturing um, that benefits from that. Um, it's called uh, Subtropolis, um, and they rent out space for for companies all over the country to um, use you know underground space as storage. Now you've you referenced a bit that at the beginning about how people are kind of they don't feel like it's, it's so aesthetically pleasing to right. be underground. Uh, but I was taken with this story about uh, a Mexico City's proposed upside down skyscraper. We were just talking about skyscrapers the first part of my show. This is a beautiful photograph. If it looks like this when they get done, yeah, yeah. A lot of the thing is a lot of those photographs they look they look they look beautiful in the renderings, but it's often it's hard to uh, it's hard to, to match that in, re- in reality. So, what are the problems of building underground? We've talked about some of the benefits with the the cooling temperature and some other. Uh, there's lots of space, but just the actual physicality of of building, mm-hmm. um, who knows how to do that, and what are the problems that those persons have to address? Well, so technology for for, for creating tunnels has gotten steadily better and better over the years. Um, you know, it becomes more precise. You can you can you can uh, bore a tunnel without disrupting the land around it uh, more now than you used to be able to. And and one of the big problems with building underground is that it costs a lot more. Um, you know, as we know from the Big Dig here in Boston, like. The costs of building underground are way higher than uh, they are on the surface. Um, but, 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 Leon, the Big Dig had a lot of other problems. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, uh, would any other normal building underground cost as much? Yeah, I think pretty oh. much. I think it's, it's pretty much across the board. Building underground is more going to be more expensive than above ground. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but that's that. At least in the short term, you know, the 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 the, the price is going to be higher. What, one of the things that the proponents of underground building say is that. Over the long term, uh, sort of life cycle costs like maintenance and and uh, and stuff like that actually actually pays pays off in the end because you know when some when a structure is underground it doesn't it doesn't suffer as much um, from weather damage and other mm-hmm. and other kinds of things like that. Well, that's uh, that's really important. Uh, I was taken uh, in the piece that you wrote for the Boston Globe about the federal government having a great amount of interest in this movement and convening a panel of specialists. Who mm-hmm. Who's a specialist? I mean, I'm just trying yeah. to imagine who are these people, where they come from. Sure. Well, they, um, you know, they're, they're people who, who study, they're engineers. They're often academic engineers who study how tunneling works and, and, and what is safe to put down there, what, what, what kind of structures would be um, better off underground. You know, they, you know, one guy I talked to is uh, Sam Ariaratnam, who's a professor at uh, Arizona State. Um, you know, he's the chairman of, of something called the International Society for Trenchless Technology. Wow! You know, <laughs> who knew? So they have they have you know they're, they're part of organizations uh, with names like that. They're 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 people who live and breathe uh, underground construction. And so yeah, the uh, the national the federal government has put together um, a panel uh, of these of these people uh, under the National Academy of Engineering. Um, and they're supposed to put out a report later this year, um, sort of saying, you know, what are the benefits of, of building underground and, and, and what are our options, essentially. So when you look around the world, there are there are uh, places where they're talking about putting very specific kinds of buildings underground, like ugly office buildings. That makes sense to a lot of people. But this government panel is really has a more expansive view about what can go underground. Well, I think they're trying to think creatively. I mean, I think the, 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 the main focus is, again, on infrastructure and and putting kind of unsightly things down there that we don't want to to, to have uh, on the surface or that we don't need to have on the surface so that we can make room for things like parks and things like housing. You know, as, cause as, as we said before, like people don't really want to live under underground. But um, if we put in, if we put stuff underground uh, that's currently above ground, that means we have more room above ground to put things that we actually do want here. Yeah. Um, and so do you think if it comes to be that the places with the most population – Will be uh, more amenable, 
receptive to totally. uh, because then they can take some buildings and put them underground. Yeah, I mean that's why you see you know, you, you mentioned Singapore earlier. I mean Singapore is one of the densest places in, in, in the world, and, and that's why they've really gone at this with with, with some energy. Like the, there's a lot of extensive uh, underground shopping there in Singapore that connects to the metro. Um, you know, another uh, you know, and 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 in Europe, in Europe and Asia generally, it's just the, the cities are are more dense than they are here, and so uh, generally speaking, in in Asia and Europe, they're they're ahead of us on this. Now, what's interesting to me is that uh, way back in you know a while ago, there were places, there were cities that took advantage of the underground specifically for cultural space. So I'm thinking of, I bet people don't even remember Atlanta Underground, which I think is a shadow of its former self, but exists uh, in some way. And there were other cities that did the same kind of thing as a way of you know being hip and happening. It was considered kind of you know funky to uh-huh. have that kind of stuff underground. I'm not hearing that uh, around now, but is it coming back? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I know that there's a lot of muse- there are a lot of museums that have underground space. Uh, I know that, um, like in, in in Cologne in Germany, there's a um, underground uh, Philharmonic uh, orchestra um, space where they play uh, in a concert chamber that's underground. Um, and it, one of the one of the lovely details about that is that when the, when the con- when the, when the orchestra is playing, um, they uh, they have to rope off the the area above so that people aren't walking over the the ceiling so that you, have, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. have the sounds of skateboarders and, and, and high heels clicking while the orchestra's playing. Uh, yeah, that would be a little bit distracting. Is Boston looking at any underground construction projects right now? So so Boston doesn't have um, any kind of master plan uh, for how to use underground space. There are definitely some projects um, that they're talking about, like mostly related to water treatment and water storage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that we do have in Boston is a, is a tunnel outfall. Um, it's a, basically a mechanism for taking water that's been cleaned up at the water treatment plant uh, and then moving it through a tunnel underneath Boston Harbor um, and then setting it out into Massachusetts Bay. Um, that's, and that's, that's something that's, you know, a, that's a great use of underground space. And I think they're, they're, pro- they're, pro- they're probably exploring other ways to use underground space for, for water treatment and, uh, and, and, and to improve sort of the, the stormwater situation. Uh, my guest is Leon Nafa. He's a reporter for the Boston Globe. He's been writing about uh, underground communities or the possibilities of building underground. Uh, now, does Boston have a problem because it is at sea level? Uh, you know, the 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 the, the sort of the, the mechanical the mechanics of how uh, you know what kind of terrain is, is is amenable to this sort of building is a little bit beyond me. Um, you know, it's the. Uh, when I talk to these engineers, we talk mostly about, you know, their ideas for how to use the space, less, you know, about the technical aspects of, you know, actually carving out these spaces and, and making these tunnels. Um, my understanding is that there are a lot of different kinds of uh, terrain that can be uh, that can be used for this purpose, but um, I, I'm not sure how, how C-Level plays into it. Hmm. Um, you know, when I think about underground living, I realize that a lot of my just in just my references, offhand references, really have to do with sort of cultural references that are all fantasy scenarios. So, mm-hmm. you know, you think about the rabbit in Alice in Wonderland, uh-huh. the Hobbit, Harry Potter, Beauty and the Beast, you yep. know, all the whole community lived in the subways, if you remember that. But in, in all of those scenarios, it was something a little bit uh, distasteful about mm-hmm. going underground. So what... If anybody on this panel of uh, this federal panel is working on sort of getting a, a renewed thought process right. about that, about moving to a psychological space where yeah. it is hip and happening. Well, so I'll give you one example. Um, there is there's a uh, there's a research center uh, being that was um, that they were talking about putting uh, in, uh, in in South Dakota, um, and one of the things they were talking about was, well, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to Make these scientists who are going to work in this place feel, you know, not claustrophobic, not like they're buried, you know, thirty thousand feet or wherever underground. And you know, the, some of the things they looked at were like uh, having had to do with the, with the senses, with the five senses. So they they talked about um, maybe we should have windows, like fake windows, like in the cafeteria where we paint, you know, uh, where we have TVs rather, and 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 the TVs are showing sky and and you know. Uh, uh, outdoors, hmm. maybe we should have some kind of special air filtration thing that makes the air feel like it's the same air you breathe on the, top, on the surface. Um, so one of the things that you think about when you're underground is that sounds sounds are different. Like the when you when you 
when you think of being in a cave, like there's that echo, right? So how do you make it so that people hear each other and, 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 and it doesn't sound like you're somewhere crazy? That's a good point. But though it could be a good site for a retreat if you're trying to get a sound of silence. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, that might work. Uh, one thing that I, I thought was interesting that somebody had written about addressing some people's concerns about like sewer smells. I assume this would not be a problem if built properly, but I guess you can get rid of that with coffee grounds. <laughs> yeah, I just saw that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty interesting in yeah. terms of people thinking, I'm never going underground because I can't stand the smell. Well, it yeah. won't be that. That's coffee not what Helsinki grounds, yeah. has. <laughs> it's, a whole, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. Uh, if it happens in Boston, uh, where do you think they'd begin? <laughs> <laughs> You Just, mean like living underground? Well, I think yeah, we have I mean, a, what, what, what part we, of the city? We have ways to go. I think before before we run out of space above ground. I mean, you know, one of the, I, I spoke to someone at the, at the at the redevelopment authority, and they said, "Look, you know, we got we got a lot of things to deal with above ground right now before we start uh, planning the planning the underground." Yeah, well, but your point about you got to have a master plan. Exactly. Is, yeah. Well, is, I, I, I we'll see if, if if Boston moves in that direction. Like, like I said, I think Europe and Asia are ahead of us on this just because of, out of necessity. Like, just the cities there are a lot denser than ours are here in America, and um, that means that they are going to start thinking about these things a lot sooner, uh, faster than we are. Well, we're glad you're thinking about it now because it gave me a lot of food for thought. We've been talking about living underground, and my guest is Leon Nafa. He's a reporter for the Boston Globe. Thank you so much. Thank you. To read his story, Our Underground Future, visit WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. You can follow us on Twitter or become a fan on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Alan Mattis, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. Our intern is Sloan Paiva. We're a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.